Today I bring you a conversation with a person who agrees with me, and I with him on this point. David Frum is going to walk us through current events once again. There, there is just no way to keep up with the cascade of scandals. We had this conversation a day before Trump announced that he would be pulling us out of the Paris Climate Accord. I think I will reserve comment about that for a future podcast. I'm sure I'll have a climate change expert on at some point to talk about this. Let's just say it's another way in which Trump seems to be forcing our country into a kind of exile among developed nations. It's as though his only goal is to diminish our stature in the world. But David and I spoke before all that. David, as you recall, is a senior editor at The Atlantic magazine. He's a former speechwriter for George Bush. And he's someone who's been unusually clear-eyed about the problem of Trump in office. So, I bring you David Frum. I am here once again with David Frum. David, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Thanks for having me. What a pleasure. As I was saying to you offline, you are a true road warrior here. You were doing this interview from an airport. You have found a reasonably quiet corner of a lounge. So um, I apologize in advance for any imperfections in the sound we're going to be uh, treating our listeners to. So thanks for doing this. And um, we are jumping into another conversation about politics to the consternation of the, I think, small percentage of my listeners who are diehard Trump supporters. I, I want to start as I attempted to start my last conversation with you, and I think I, I do this really every time I touch the subject now. I want to attempt to anchor this to some basic understanding that partisanship is not what is motivating this conversation. You know, I, I think there are a few simple moves we can make to at least establish that to a moral certainty for any reasonable person in the audience. And, and one is to say that, you know, the implication of everything we're going to say that is probably urging impeachment proceedings along is that we are eager to have a President Mike Pence, right? So that this is not, we're not talking about a choice between Trump and Hillary now. We're talking about everything we say that, that suggests he's unfit for office is ushering in a Republican replacement and, and one who you know, I, I'm really not at all sanguine about, given my concerns about the influence of, of religion in politics. And, you know, that perhaps there are other ways to do it, but that is, that is a, a, a fairly simple one. Can you think of anything to say, apart from just referencing your obvious background as a Republican, that can cut through this, this allegation of partisanship before we start? The rule I try to follow, don't always live up to it, but I try, is no arguments about arguments. So somebody will make a point. Uh, a comedian should not make a sketch about the assassination of a president. To which the response will be not to engage with that, but to say, well, did you comment in a similar way about a situation that I personally believe is to be analogous? Um, and you get this infinite regress where arguments turn into arguments about arguments. So with the present president, uh, your statements about him are either true or, or false. And you may have good or bad motives, but they're either true or false. So it's, it's either true or false that he's behaving in a certain way, that he's a man of a certain character, that he's doing certain things to our alliance structure, or it's not. And these constant attempts to sort of go to the argument behind the argument, I think in the case of Trump in particular, that they are desperation moves. Trump is a very hard person to defend on the merits. 
So uh, it, it's hard to say that it's hard to acquit him on the Russia matter. Um, it's hard to suggest that he is a person who lives up to the ethical and character standards that we've accepted in past presidents. And so you get these moves where they say, well, let's not talk about him. Let's talk about you. And frankly, I'm not that interesting. So I don't, I don't think anybody wants to talk about me. We want to talk about Donald Trump, who's the most powerful man in the world and probably one of the more interesting men in the world. Okay, yeah, well, I, th I think that's good enough. I went out on Twitter a couple hours ago asking for the the hardest and, and most sane questions in defense of Trump for us. And honestly, I didn't get much. I, I, will, I will read some of those questions. Um, many of them focus on the problem of information siloing and fake news. And it is alleged that you and I are the victims of fake news and, and conspiracy theories. The whole Russia conspiracy is a conspiracy theory. I can come up with a much better argument in his defense. Oh, I, I would, I'd love to hear it. What, what's prop him up for me. Okay. Well, this is not an argument in, in actually exactly in defense of him, but it's it, it, a, an argument that works just defense, which is all the disturbing things we know, or many of the disturbing things we know about him, we know because people entrusted with public secrets have broken their oaths and released into the public domain information that is meant to be private within the government. And this information often involves real comp compromising of really important secrets. I mean the, 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 I mean, the Russians are not babies. The Russians do not have their important conversations on open lines. They have their conversations on lines or by modes that they believe to be secure. So every time that somebody from the NSA or CIA or National Security Council releases something about what the Russians are saying about, with Trump or about some conversation between the Trump camp and the Russians, they reveal to the Russians that something the Russians had thought was secret is not in fact secret. And that is a real loss to the United States. And what somebody might say to me is, um, you were very angry at Edward Snowden and Bradley slash Chelsea Manning for betraying secrets. Here are secrets being betrayed. Why aren't you equally angry? That's the best argument. I, mean, I view that as the way in which our political norms are eroding under the what I'm increasingly viewing as a, as a failed pressure testing of our system. I mean, so the, the fact that you and I can be sanguine and even greedy with respect to leaks of classified intelligence that do our society harm. I want to say I'm not sanguine about this. I mean, I think one of the tragedies of the Trump presidency, Trump's advent to the presidency is itself a terrible blow to the institutions of the United States. And the things the society is having to do in an effort to defend itself against him, which may or may not ultimately be successful. I'm, I'm not saying when, that Trump won't ultimately prevail over these institutions, but are, themselves come with terrible costs. No, I was, I was, I was granting that. I mean, I'm, I'm saying I, I, I want those leaks to continue because I think Trump is so bad, but no, I'm not downplaying the costs at all. I, th I think it's fairly terrifying that we're in this position. Look at, look at what's happened with... Um, I'll give you another example of the cost. The, the action of the courts in striking down Trump's, I don't know, are we allowed to call it a Muslim ban? I, I mean, Yes, you can, you can read the fine print on that, yes. Let's, let's call it that, a Muslim ban, his Muslim ban. The courts are, these judicial decisions, I mean, I think I basically agree with what they're trying to do, that you can say the, this, uh, these actions by the president are obviously capricious. Uh, they're obviously motivated by animus. They're obviously stupid and irrational. However, the president's authority over immigration is plenary. Um, these are he is clearly acting within what would have been thought of as his rights until six months ago. 
because he's so flagrantly using this power for ill and for malice and without a basis in an indiscriminatory way, the courts are telling him he can't do it. But, you know, that, that's, the courts are overstepping. Let me give you one more example of, of a price of Trump. And this is maybe the most serious one of all. Everyone's laughing over this funny fake tweet that he did last night. Um, you know, the, the, the mangled uh, thing that then, uh, it was a typo and it stayed up for six hours. Okay, so what it looked a lot hap like happened like, was the president was tweeting while uh, falling asleep, had some kind of spasm with his fingers, tweeted something nonsensical, passed out so he didn't notice it, and nobody found him for six hours or noticed the tweet or did anything about it. That's very amusing. Uh, well, it can happen. Uh, he's older man. Maybe he takes sleeping pills. This is a man who also has the power with, another, with his other fingers to launch a nuclear war. We all are wondering whether the people who execute his commands would take an order from Donald Trump about a nuclear war in the same obedient way they would take an order from a Barack Obama or George W. Bush or Bill Clinton or Ronald Reagan. And I think we all kind of hope that they wouldn't. But what do we call societies where military people don't defer to the civilian leadership? Banana republics? Well, what do we call them? Yeah, right. So the, the, the point is that there is no, we are not coming out of this hole. However the story ends, we are going to have major losses for our institutions. Yeah, well, so let's, let's talk about how the story might end. I, I want to talk about the Russia investigation, but, but first, let's talk about some of these, these losses we've already noticed. How is Trump's foreign policy going? He just got back from this trip, and um, I, I noticed that you reacted to the McMaster op-ed, which seemed to rescind just what it really has been a multi-generational vision of a world where established democracies cooperate in ways that aren't guided by narrow self-interest. And apparently, we're no longer into that. In the world before World War II, countries behaved like selfish entities, and they regarded the world as basically a, com a competitive enterprise. The United States, uh, the other great powers, small powers too, um, it, was a, it was a Hobbesian world of all against all. And after World War II, uh, our parents and grandparents decided, we're not doing that anymore. Um, and what we're going to do, this, is, this can't apply to the whole planet, because there are a lot of authoritarian regimes, there are a lot of backward societies. But among the advanced democracies, we're going to build new kinds of structures where international politics begins to look a lot like domestic politics. So if an American company and a German company have a dispute, that gets settled in more or less the same way as if two American companies had a dispute. If, if there's even a trade dispute between the German and American government, uh, or between the United States and the EU, that gets settled in a way that looks a lot like a domestic. There's a, there's a set of rules that are agreed upon in advance by the two sovereigns. Uh, the rules are then arbitrated by a neutral adjudicator. Uh, th that arbitration is binding, and you can then enforce it inside the court system of either country. From in this sort of zone of peace and cooperation that's you know, the NATO countries plus Japan, plus Australia, New Zealand, plus a few others. International and domestic politics blur to a great extent. I regard that as one of the most signal political accomplishments of the human race. So the Trump people went to Europe and they said, as far as we're concerned, that's over. We regard the countries of Europe, and we don't, we, first, we don't even acknowledge there is such a thing as the EU, and we regard the countries of Europe as power competitors in exactly the same way that we would regard Russia or China or Uzbekistan, or Congo. And, and, and 
you know, we, we, we call you our friends, but we think our, our relationship is regulated entirely by interest, not by values, and interest in the most short-sighted way. So when we have a trade dispute, we go to bat for the American company. We don't ask the question, who's right, or how do we sustain a, a, a long-term regime? We just say, our guys, our guys win, your guys lose. Might makes right, the stronger imposes his will on the weaker, and we're counting on ourselves to be the stronger for a long time to come. Yeah, you have a great passage in this, in this op-ed, quote, Perhaps the most terrifying thing about the Trump presidency is the way even its most worldly figures, in words composed for them by its deepest thinkers, have reimagined the United States in the image of their own chief, selfish, isolated, brutish, domineering, and driven by immediate appetites rather than ideals or even long-term interests. And I, I think that just puts it perfectly. It's, it really is. And, and this is the character of our country, too, which is our, should be our greatest concern. But the way in which defenders of Trump have to basically, I mean, I, you, know, you put it this way in, in a tweet, people who defend Trump become just like Trump. And, you know, I said something similar a few days before, just watching how otherwise serious people with, I mean, the, the most serious people in his administration, the people who we were relieved to see appointed, because finally there are a few grown-ups at the table, you have them just jettison their credibility and, and their, their ethical gravitas insofar as they could maintain it for, for an hour in, in, the, in the current administration, they just perform a kind of moral self-immolation trying to defend him. They immediately start lying or speaking in Orwellian euphemisms. Just the sickness spreads. It's very, I mean, that, that's one of the most worrying things about what's happening in Washington right now. I, I agree. And, and the, the tragedy of McMaster, this is happening with H.R. McMaster. I mean, in his case, it really is, it's like an opera because I'm sure he took the job with a view to minimizing the harm that, 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 the harm that Donald Trump would do. And I'm sure in all kinds of ways that we won't know for 20, 30 years, he is minimizing the harms that Donald Trump would do. I'm sure he's playing a very public-spirited role and, and sacrificing his own reputation in the, in the process, which is kind of noble in a way. But at the same time, he is called on to tell lies about petty things, and he's doing it. So uh, one more question on foreign policy here, because th this genuinely surprised me, and I'm sure there's some way of, of seeing it where it would just have been obvious he would behave this way. But I, I was not expecting Trump to behave the way he did with the Saudis, where he, he really just became like a, a lickspittle to the the Saudi regime. I mean, it was just, he talked tough during the campaign. He, you can see tweets of his where he, he talks about their abuse of women and human rights and their, their responsibility for terrorism and, and, you know, exporting the Wahhabi worldview to the ends of the earth. I mean, he, he seemed to be aware of just how beyond the pale much of what they do is and has been for, for a long time. And yet, he didn't make a peep about this and then singled out Iran as though they were the true engine of jihadist terror. Can you explain what, what happened there? I, I can't, actually. I, I, I'm sure there is an explanation. I don't have the information to assess how much of this is driven by crass business dealings, how much of this is driven by the ideology of the people around him, how much of this is driven by certain kinds of you know, domestic political considerations that he's balanced. Trump balances um, a lot of the pretty obvious anti-Semitism um, of in his entourage with kind of championing of the foreign policy views of certain parts of the right wing of the Jewish community. 
some of that may be in play. Uh, there, there may just be, by the way, slovenliness and lack of attention, where with, because he was flattered that he got dragged into endorsing the Saudi side of an internal sectarian war in the Islamic world. I can't assess all of those things. And look, there's also, there are also serious reasons why the United States will go and has gone easy on Saudi Arabia and will continue to do so, um, so long as uh, oil remains an important fuel. One of the things I think is sort of exciting about the time we live in, there are a lot of bad things, is within the life of the younger listeners to the, this podcast, I think that day, they will see the end of that day. Uh, but uh, I don't think I will. That's something we should be going full speed ahead on, obviously. Okay, so the Russia investigation, how is that going? I was going to have you on the episode I did last week with Anne Applebaum and Juliet Kayem, but then we had scheduling issues and, and your interview got pushed like another 36 hours in the future. And, and the news was changing so fast that I got the sense that if we just waited a few more days, all of a sudden we would be in a completely different news cycle with new facts to worry about. And indeed, that has happened since I had that conversation with, with Anne and Juliet. We now have Kushner and his back channel, as well as the ham-fisted response to that disclosure on the on part of the administration. So talk to me about how things are going now in this investigation. Well, Anne, of course, has always been a great teacher of mine. So people who got to hear her, I think really, I, I know how much I benefited from her wisdom on these issues over the years. And I, I hope um, it would that your listeners would agree with me about that, because she really has been and at tremendous personal risk, I don't, and doesn't tend to talk about this, but she has herself been a target and her family of Russian active measures and disinformation. Um, and it has taken a terrible price from her. And she's not one to complain about it, but it, it's true and needs to be recognized. Yeah, she's fantastic. On the Kushner matter, we still don't know exactly what happened. I think it's, it's important in, in all of these cases not to get ahead of the story, because you can see how rumor can easily overspread. And you can disillusion people that they expect bigger news than they get. And I'm, I think we all need to be very cognizant of the terrible, terrible example of Louise Mensch, um, who is just, um, I don't know if any, the people listening to this podcast are aware of her, but Louise Mensch, she was a British conservative member of parliament. Um, she's had a very exotic career in a lot of ways. And her, the latest, she's no longer in parliament. And the latest chapter of her career, she's become a disseminator of the inverse of RT. It's like, it's like if, R, if there were an anti-RT that is uh, very anti-Russian in its tone, but just like RT in its method, in its total disregard for knowledge and fact and making up stories and circulating wild rumors. In this struggle for the character of the country, being careful with what you know and being careful about what you say is an important moral principle, not just a prudential principle. You don't want to be like the people who abuse the credulity of their audience. Um, so I'm waiting to see if is the story, um, what is the dimension of this story? There, we've heard many explanations of what could have happened. I have to tell you, the answers that come from the um, Kushner's spinners don't sound very plausible. And the idea that the president's son-in-law with no military experience proposed to go into a Russian compound, have a secure conversation about military dispositions in Syria, he, I just, we have an entire Pentagon. If, if, if anyone is going to talk about, well, how do we make sure that we avoid plane crashes? Um, it's not going to be Jared Kushner. It's going to be the people in the Pentagon. And they have lots of ways of communicating with their Russian counterparts and in ways that are much more secure, both technically and also making sure that you don't reveal more than you want to reveal. 
Uh, so that story doesn't seem right. On the other hand, the darkest version of the story, which is that um, Kushner was seeking some kind of uh, personal financial advantage, which was suggested by a Bloomberg report, we don't know that that, that to be true either. Um, th there are some stray hints about that, but that shouldn't be taken as written. All we know is this whole this story is um, exceedingly strange, very difficult to justify, and there's no and there has been no credible effort to justify it. And it is behavior that, if not justified, should lead to the loss at least of a security clearance and and maybe outright resignation and possibly even harsher sanctions. Yeah, and and the effort to justify that I've seen most commonly is that. It relies on equivocating on this term back channel, the claim that back channels are a kind of standard operating procedure, as though this sort of back channel is equivalent to the other kinds of back channels people are talking about. That is a, a, a truly specious move, isn't it? Yeah, well, there is, the people who make this point are, they throw out this word as if they know what it means or if they know what it hits. Look, what is a back channel? That term gets applied to two kinds of conversations. The first is a conversation where in an effort to explore with an adversary, the, gov uh, the government of the United States will send somebody who is connected to the adversary, but deniable by the United States. You know, a business person, a retired military person, somebody who, if the conversation goes wrong, the United States can say, hey, just, he was just gassing. He wasn't talking for the Mission Impossible. You know, of course, if your mission fails, of course, the, the secretary will deny any knowledge. So the, the first reason you have a back channel is in order to have deniability. So Jared Kushner would be the absolute last person in the world you would choose to set up a back channel of that kind, because he's obviously acting for the president, undeniably so. The second kind of back channel that you get is the kind of back channel that the um, Obama administration had at the beginning of its approach to Iran, which is in an effort, again, to explore what is possible. You set up a three-way conversation. In that case, the, the intermediary was a man. The United States would talk to the government of Oman, the government of Oman would talk to the government of Iran, and messages would be sent back and forth that way. And only after a certain point would the conversation become more direct between the United States and Iran, that some preconditions were dealt with first. And I'm not endorsing, by the way, the Obama-Iran policy, but just, just as a, this is how it worked. Now, it's not impossible that the Trump people broke through those rules and norms and tried to do it a different way. But you just can't get past the fact that he went to them. Let me give you one last example drawn from American history about how these things work. Henry Kissinger, when he was national security advisor, had an informal um, set of contacts with the then Russian ambassador to the United States, a guy named Dobrynin. Dobrynin would come to Kissinger first at the NSC. First, in, uh, they would meet in various neutral places. And then ultimately, when Kissinger became Secretary of State, he would come to the State Department. In fact, he even had a reserve parking space at the State Department, which is a big bone of contention. But the point was, there was no question about the security of their conversation. One of the big questions that uh, we have about this is, did Kushner not understand that he was putting himself in a position where the Russians could generate a transcript of his talk, alter that transcript in various embarrassing ways, and release that or use that as a weapon against him? He was putting his head inside their noose. Did he not understand it? Why was he doing it? What motive could have been so strong or was he so stupid? as to have taken such a terrible risk for himself and his administration, or his administration-to-be. They weren't yet in office. So now, what do you expect of the coming Comey testimony? I keep using a line to describe the Trump story as, we, we are living in a place where there are many secrets, but no mysteries. The broad outline of what happened, I think most people understand. 
although the particular details don't. So I, I assume we'll learn some more details. But what, what I think we'll learn what we all already know, which is uh, what the president has told the Russians and what he told Lester Holt, that Comey was ramping up an investigation into the connection between the Trump campaign and Russia. Uh, this made Trump uncomfortable, um, either because he was so offended or because he had a guilty conscience, we don't know. Uh, and he then fired Comey in order to stop the investigation. Um, whether that's capital O, capital J, obstruction of justice in the legal sense is a question that lawyers will be arguing on the cable channels for the next six months. But if the intent was, was his intention to obstruct justice, lowercase o, lowercase j, obviously it was. So what do you think the odds of impeachment are at this point? And, and what do you think the, the tipping point in Trump's job approval rating below a certain percentage would move the GOP to consider impeachment? I mean, what, what, how low does it, do we have to get before? If I had to bet next month's rent money, um, I would say barring um, a health event, I assume Donald Trump finishes this term of his intact. Impeachment is a very traumatic experience for the society. The United States has had three impeachment-like events involving Andrew Johnson after the Civil War, Richard Nixon, and Bill Clinton. Um, and jo Johnson was impeached, but not removed. Uh, Nixon would have been removed and so resigned before he was, in fact, he was impeached in the first place. And Bill Clinton was impeached, but in a situation where everyone, after the first few days or weeks, understood he was not going to be removed and the whole thing became kabuki. In all those cases, the House of Representatives was in the hand, hands of the party other than the president. So it, it's hard for me to imagine. Um, it's also one of the things that has happened since, even since Nixon this had already happened in the Clinton time. So this has become a very legalistic society. So what we are going to be debating is whether or not the Trump people broke certain criminal statutes. And there will be a strong argument that if they can't be shown to have violated criminal statutes, uh, then they did nothing impeachable. So if firing Comey is not capital O, capital J, obstruction of justice of a kind that you could prove in a court of law, then it's not, then it's nobody's, then it's fine. Then it's nobody's business. And where this becomes really um, lethal is, again, we don't know that the Trump people colluded with the Russians in the sense of coordinating with them how to use the WikiLeaks information. But if they did, it's hard to see a crime that they committed. It's illegal for an American to take part in a hack, and it's illegal for an American to induce a foreigner to expend material resources to influence an American election campaign. But what would not be illegal would be for an American, after the hack is all completed, and without receiving any of the content of the hack, because it's illegal to receive hacked information. But if an American advised a Russian on how to use the hack for maximum effect, and if the Russian then used the hack in a way that just involved hitting buttons on a computer and not spending money, the hack may have cost money, but the hack's over, and, and moving it to WikiLeaks and WikiLeaks distributing it, I, I wrote a long article. It's, I mean, it's shocking. It's anti-democratic. I, I would say it's un-American and disloyal. I am looking for the crime, and I don't see it. So my understanding of impeachment, and this is, again, born of conversations I've had with you and Anne and, and Juliet, is that it is a political process so that it, the articles can emphasize the political reasons for, you know, for impeachment. But there has to be something criminal in the mix, or can it be entirely political? No, I don't think so. I, but I think the problem is that, that our expectation of criminality is part of the political reality. If 18, after November of 2018, if we still have a Republican House of Representatives, 
And if at that point, and the special prosecutor's reported, and the special prosecutor says, in effect, look, uh, yeah, the Trump people, they were talking to the Russians all the time. And they were helping the Russians uh, to use this information to hurt Hillary Clinton. Um, but they didn't break any laws in doing that. So we can't recommend anybody for prosecution except, um, you know, Paul Manafort didn't disclose and so-and-so didn't pay his taxes and this other person lied to investigators. So we're going to go after those low-level people for those process offenses. But the people who, were who engaged in this clandestine work, they didn't break any law. I mean, I would say, my God, I mean, th that's appalling. It's the worst espionage scandal in American history. But do I imagine that Republican members of the House will say, well, the mere fact that the president seems to behave in an anti-democratic and disloyal way, but without violating any laws, can we, will we vote to impeach him? I, I find it hard to imagine that they will. I mean, look what they've swallowed to date. But wouldn't you imagine if he had a 14% a approval rating, would, wouldn't the landscape change? Yes, maybe, maybe. But, but you know, one of the things that we're going to discover have you heard this locution? You'll, you'll say the president did this or that bad thing. And people will say, the American people don't care about that. That'll be presented as if it's some kind of argument. And I'll say, well, I care. <laughs> I care right now. And, and if they don't care, it's, I guess it's my job to go make them care. But the fact that before I've started explaining to them, they don't care, that's what I'm supposed to be impressed by that. But it is true that there is a vast network that is going to exist. And we see it as all, you know, the most powerful cable TV network in America, a lot of talk radio, and much of the Republican Party that will be there to obfuscate and confuse and, and to say, if, if we don't have a violation of the Espionage Act of 2017 or a violation of federal election law or some other prosecutable offense, um, then it was just dirty trick. It was just politics. You're criminalizing politics, and they will be able to rally a lot of people to that belief. And part of the um, thing that makes Trumpism so sinister is the anti-Trump case rests to a great extent on the idea that your loyalty to your nation should be stronger than your loyalty to your ethnicity or to your political affiliation. And if you read Dennis Prager's column in the National Review the other day, which has been much discussed, where he, he chastises anti-Trump Republicans, there are a lot of Americans, and especially on the right, who have increasingly come to view that, you know, my loyalty to America is less than my loyalty to my ethnicity and my loyalty to my ideology. And they will then say, and, and there are people, I mean, so far the people who are saying this are, are pretty unserious people, but there are people who will say in public places, well, the Russians did us a favor then. There are people who said that. And so far, again, those are secondary figures in the conservative world, but we're this close to Rush Limbaugh saying it. And Sean Hannity has his new friend, Julian Assange. I mean, they're this close to saying it. So I want to um, field some questions from Trumpistan because I, I solicited them on Twitter. And I got a few that will, um, will not surprise you and we can, we can dispatch them as, as efficiently as we can. But before I do that, I just want to comment on the, the Kathy Griffin incident because I saw what you said on Twitter and, and, and I, I certainly share your opinion that it was beyond the pale and... and she was rightly criticized for it. But I, I think it's, it's useful to get a little context around this because, first, I, I think people found that image especially offensive because an image of a severed head is no longer obvious medieval hyperbole. It's actually, I mean, we're, we're living in an age of severed heads now with groups like ISIS. The optics were, were wrong for that reason. But she's a comic, and this was this was still a judgment call, and, it, and I think it, it was pretty clearly a bad call, but she didn't know 
where the line was until she had crossed it and saw the reaction. If you compare that to the president himself, right? I mean, we have a president who called for violence at his campaign rallies. We have a president who openly encouraged the Russians to hack the emails of his opponents. Whether or not he colluded or not, he actually stood up at a campaign rally and, and, and said, you know, hack more of those of Hillary's emails. He encouraged WikiLeaks to release more of them once the releases began to happen. And we, we have a president who said only positive things about Vladimir Putin when we know that Putin kills some number of his political opponents and, and critics in the media and jails others. And these really aren't judgment calls at all. I mean, these, these are bright lines that any patriotic American... But what do these two things have to do with each other? Let, let, let me ask you this question. Do you believe that it's permissible to assassinate a bad president? All the things that you said are true about Donald Trump, which I totally agree with, are entirely beside the case. That's one... Kathy Griffin is one conversation. Should comedians make jokes about assassination? No, but David, they're linked because there's, there's an asymmetry here that I, that I just want to point out, which is in the real world where you and I are having this conversation, Kathy Griffin was fired in about 15 minutes from CNN, right? I mean, that, that's how grown-ups react now when someone steps across the line in our world, whereas in Trumpistan... Right, Rush Limbaugh's still on the air. But even worse, you have someone like Alex Jones who goes on for months about how the Sandy Hook massacre was a hoax, thereby subjecting scores of grieving parents to the abuse of an, an internet mob. And we have a president who sits down with him and dignifies him as an extraordinarily influential, practically an advisor to the White House, right? These are just not symmetrical situations. No, but, but, but they're irrelevant. They're, they're not, uh, this is my point about the arguments about the arguments. They have nothing to do with one another. I'm sorry, Donald Trump is no model for anything. Um, and he has no excuse for anything. You do not get, that people do not get, a, if it's true that because the United States elected Donald Trump, standards of decency for everybody are going to be relaxed. I know, my view would be because we elected Donald Trump, the lesson of Donald Trump is we, we need higher standards of decency. Absolutely, yeah. And Alex, you know, the fact that Alex Jones or Donald Trump do things, I, I think what happened to Kathy Griffin and by the way, she, I mean, she'll continue to make a living. She just won't be on CNN anymore. They separated themselves for their own corporate reasons. I think it, it puts down some markers about there's, you know, there, there, there are American institutions where decency is not tolerated, where indecency is not tolerated. And it makes those American institutions where indecency is tolerated, like Vox, stand out more brightly. But you can't control the behavior of other people. You can only control your own and your own reactions. And what, one, of the, one of the things that... that it is a very dangerous path to begin to say that because Donald Trump is so appalling, I'm going to be more relaxed. Because he's so appalling, you must be more vigilant. And the example I would really here commend, without being overdramatic about it and comparing our situation to those, is the way Soviet dissidents responded to the Soviet state. Precisely because the state was so defamatory and hysterical and so deceitful, they, they said it was extra important for people who were opposing the state to follow truth and honor and legality. The way I mean, Trump is, Trump is a moral catastrophe. And part of my response to him is to say, gosh, you know, I'll speak for myself and for people I care about. I, we have to up our game. And if, if we've been slack in any way or careless in the way that we talked or cruel or we, we, we indulge certain things, you know, we can't. We can't. In fact, we have, to, we, have to be, we have to be more insistent on what is right and what is wrong. I, I totally agree. I'm just pointing out that the defenders of Trump 
who find Kathy Griffin's behavior beyond the pale are keeping two sets of books ethically and politically. Yeah. And that's a, that's an internal contradiction. Yeah, well, their defenders of Trump are, they're defending a bad guy, so they do bad things. Unsurprising. But I don't see defenders of Trump as having a coherent set of arguments that have to be. Defenders of Trump are expressions of, and again, at the high, I mean, I, there are lots of people who voted for him. I'm not blaming them. And, and you know, most Americans think about politics about as much as, that I, as I think about football. Uh, and, and a lot of the stuff is unused. But, but in, the, in the world of people who actively participate in politics and, and are well-informed and defend Trump, there are characterological issues there. So it, it wouldn't be surprising to me that they behave in ways that people of bad character would behave. So going to our Twitter feed now, and, and again, this is the best I got going out for um, questions in defense of Trump. And not all of them defend him. They're just they're, Some of these are just good questions for us. But why does the left keep trying to destroy this president and nullify the election rather than assessing their own shortfalls and rebuilding? I'm not on the left. Um, I'm a million miles from the left, so I can't tell you. There are some interesting intern arguments on the left that I follow as a spectator and an, and an interested citizen. The president is trying to uh, destroy himself, and that's an interesting psychological question. Uh, these, but as I, I think one of the gravelins of what I've been saying here on the air is this election will never be nullified. America will be wearing this election for a long time to come. Um, we, will not, and we will not go back to normal. We will not efface the stain. We will not undo the damage that is done to America's standing in the world or its world leadership. This election will not be nullified. What I am concerned about is... Um, to protect the national security of the United States from a president who is behaving in ways that I think are very dangerous um, and for reasons that I think are very suspect. Yeah, and th this question also takes the line, which I've heard perhaps more frequently than any other, which is in response to my complaining about Trump and worrying about him, I get, he was elected, get over it, right? Like you're still, you're still grieving over the loss of an election as though that could possibly be motivating what we're saying now. Attached to this criticism is this idea that you had the people who, who were supporting Trump and, and even were confident he would be elected, right? So the people who were really taking the pulse of the country better than we were, people who weren't surprised by the outcome of the election. So the criticism you hear from them is the fact that you, you weren't prescient enough to know that Trump was coming proves that your analysis of the current situation need not be taken seriously. Do you get a lot of that? A little bit. So let me, you raise a lot of points. Let me just deal with them in reverse order. So I hope this isn't an indiscreet story, but I, I had um, dinner with Andrew Sullivan about 10 days before the election. And Andrew predicted that Trump would win, and I very confidently insisted that he would not. So Andrew was obviously right, and I was wrong, and credit to Andrew for that. Why was Andrew right, and why was I wrong? And the answer was, Basically, I had a higher opinion of the American people than he did. So although, although I, he was right and I was wrong, I don't think, I think Andrew himself would be the first to say, I mean, he wasn't happy to be right. He wished he were wrong. I mean, he saw something, he had a more negative view than I did. But the people who predicted this, if people say, I predicted it and I welcomed it, then I really wonder. But the fact, you know, there's also this fact, Trump is president very much on a lucky bounce. I mean, he did get rather less of the popular vote than Mitt Romney. He got rather more of the popular vote than Michael Dukakis. But he's, he's a less than Romney, south of Romney, north of Dukakis figure in American political life. Um, he, his vote, vote was distributed uh, more um, economically than Hillary's, not because of the campaign. Again, I think that a lot, they were surprised as anybody. It was a lucky bounce and 
He won, and he's the president, and we have to deal with that. So no one's trying to nullify that. That's a fact. It's also a fact that a lot of other things that are really dangerous, we don't stop caring about the country just because somebody who may have an improper connection to a hostile foreign power has got the war-making power of the United States in his hands. We don't say, oh, well, you know, uh, the Electoral College has spoken, and therefore, um, you know, Putin's guy gets to control the nuclear f weaponry of the United States. Um, I think because the, elect because the Electoral College has spoken, it becomes rather more of a problem that Putin's guy has the weapons of the, the United States in his hands. Well, on that point, another question from Twitter. The amount of evidence for the existence of a god and Trump-Russia collusion is the same, i.e. none. Why do you believe in one but not the other? That's clearly targeted to me and my atheism, but I get a lot of this. The people who think that all of this talk about Trump and Russia is just fake news. Is there an inroad into that criticism? That Yeah. We have the body dead on the carpet. We have the ornamental, the carved oriental dagger protruding between the shoulder blades. And we have the fingerprints on the dagger. What we don't have is the whereabouts of the suspect and the motive. But for people to say no dead body is ridiculous. I mean, this all happened in plain sight. The uh, intervention of Russia into the election, that happened in front of our eyes. Donald Trump urging and welcoming it, that happened in front of our eyes. The almost perfect overlap of Donald Trump's policy with the policy the Russians would wish an American candidate for president to adopt, that happened in front of our eyes. Now, here's what we don't know. Oh, and, and Russian resources purchasing ads on Facebook to direct flows of false information from RT via Breitbart to um, the people they thought would influence the election. That all happened in front of our eyes. And also the crazy number of Russian contacts from his, his surrogates. Here's what we don't know. We don't know to what degree um, the Trump, if any, the Trump people communicated back to the Russians. That's the collusion part. And we know that the Russians helped him. Uh, we don't know if he, if the Trump people helped the Russians to help them. So that's the big question. And that may never be proven one way or another. Uh, but the fact that the Russians helped Donald Trump into the presidency, I mean, that's, that's not, that's not the exist evidence for the existence of God. That's the evidence for the existence of the Sistine Chapel. Go stand under it and look up. You'll see it. Again, uh, in a similar vein, how do you consistently take Washington Post reports from anonymous sources as fact regarding Comey memos and other nonsense. This is the fake news issue with respect to anonymous sources. If somebody has one, if, if, if let me put it this way, there's this example, the president the other day tweeted out a story on Fox. So if an article that has no byline on it references one unnamed source, I don't take that very seriously. If an article by a team of reporters, some of whom have won the Pulitzer Prize with long careers of reliability, have seven or nine or 30 unnamed sources, uh, I take that very seriously. And some of these do have a crazy number of unnamed sources. Well, well, they, well they're sort of flooding. They're showing off in a way. They're flooding. They're, and, and one other thing. And if the people who are implicated in those stories, you know, if James Comey himself don't contradict them in public, you know, there are a lot of people right, right, who are well positioned in the CIA and other places to say the Washington Post is wrong. Why don't they ever tell us? When you report that it is the unanimous verdict of the intelligence community that Russians were talking amongst themselves, um, about how to help Donald Trump, who is the person who's going on the record to say, hey, I, I always had the CIA at the time. That's not true. To the extent that intelligence people do go on the record on these things, they confirm the reporting. So uh, again, the, Trump is not proven to have colluded. Um, it's just that the evidence is highly probable and uncontradicted.
Another question, why does it seem that all of the criticisms of Donald Trump were no big deal under Obama? Like what? Well, nothing is listed here, but yeah, this, this is a, a common claim that the sort of thing that we, we would happily put up with under Obama is now a killing offense under Trump, as though the misdeeds of Obama are similarly legion and salient. So I, I voted against Barack Obama twice. And uh, I had a lot of critical things to say about everything from the Affordable Care Act to the Iran deal. But Obama is not analogous to Donald Trump at all. First, Obama was a man of personal integrity. And I, I hope that politics allows one to say, man, I, I completely disagree with 85% of what this politician did, but I respect the way in which he did politics. I, we say that at people's funerals. We should be able to say that in their lifetimes. And so that's what I, I, I say about Barack Obama. I think he was a man of integrity. I mean, which is not to say everything he said was scrupulously true. He is a politician. And he often allowed us to draw false conclusions, and he often misled us in all the political art, uh, arts. And sometimes he said things that he thought were true that later turned out not to be true. Like when he said, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. I think he meant that to be true. It just turned out not to be true. And maybe if he'd been more hard-boiled about his own plan, he would recognize that, that probably wasn't going to turn out to be true, but it was not a conscious lie of the, of the Trumpian kind. But yeah, Obama did a lot of things wrong. And George, the guy I work for, George W. Bush, whom I still basically like a lot, he did a lot of things wrong. Trump is just qualitatively different from anybody in American history ever before. Yeah, and, and, and the unprofessionalism of his approach to politics, which is to say the, the chaotic and impulsive and, and you know, narcissistic roots of it, that is what is so concerning from my point of view. I mean, and, and, that's, and you, can, you cannot say any of that about Obama. Obama is the antithesis of that. Yeah. Maybe sometimes he could overdo it, actually. <laughs> he could yeah, be a little yeah. too deliberate, a little too slow to make a decision. But as I say, I, um, I voted against him. I, I, I don't feel myself like obliged to be lawyer for the defense for the Obama presidency. Uh, another question here or statement. Uh, Trump supporters don't really care about foreign policy except for security concerns. Would you talk about how it matters in their daily lives? That's a great question. One of the things that is a real achievement in most of the countries of the developed world, is that if, if you're pulled over by a police officer for speeding and you offer, offer a bribe, you will probably end up in jail. And that's not true on much of the rest of the world, but it is true here. It's true in Germany, it's true in Canada, um, and it's a tremendous accomplishment. But building societies ruled by integrity, it's very difficult and easily undone. The wave of corruption and the scale of the corruption that has flowed out of Russia to the rest of the world is changing political systems in other countries. It's changed Italy, it's, it's, changed, it's changing the UK, and it may change here. This Russification of our politics is going to mean, and you see it already at the presidential level, that this is an administration that um, has no ethical center at all and breaches all kinds of rules. And it's very hard to explain to people through the government that if the president and his family are, getting, are enriching themselves on a massive scale, and they don't even need the money. And there you are, some struggling person at the EPA, and you do. You know, yes, you'll be worried about being caught, but you will lose the idea that what is happening here is wrong. And most people in, the, in government who obey the law and don't take bribes don't do it because they're afraid of being caught. They do it because they think it's wrong. Yeah, more of the erosion of ethics and, and political norms. A few questions here on the silver lining in Trump's style and you know his his much vaunted skill as a negotiator which is has yet to be seen now 
couldn't you acknowledge the possibility that he he can pressure China to pressure North Korea, or he can walk away from the Paris Accords in order to cut a better economic deal? What is so wrong with expecting Germany to pay their NATO fees? I mean, isn't he just bringing his business acumen to a circumstance that really has needed it for decades? I see absolutely no evidence that that is happening. And let me give you a very concrete example. So right now we're on the verge of a uh, terrible confrontation with North Korea. There are three American carrier groups uh, within reach of the Korean Peninsula, which is an extraordinary concentration of naval power. And the president and the secretary of state have made pretty rough threats against North Korea. So they are contemplating military action. If that's something you have in mind, I, I would recommend against it, by the way, but if that's what you have in mind, it's very risky. You have to build a big coalition to help you. And the most important partner you will have in this effort is South Korea, of course, because that's where the 25,000 or so American troops are. That's where the supplies are. So what did Donald Trump do as he was amping up the rhetoric against North Korea? He gave an interview to Reuters at the beginning of April in which he threatened to tear up the U.S.-South Korea free trade agreement. And he reneged on the cost-sharing agreement on the missile defense program for South Korea, which, by the way, doesn't protect South Korea. It protects the United States and Japan. And he seemed to have no plan at all. That just seemed to be fitful, impulsive rage. And you say, you're talking about fighting possibly a war with North Korea, and your first step is to alienate South Korea. And oh, by the way, you're doing this a week or 10 days before an election in which the South Koreans are choosing between a more America-friendly and a less-friendly, America-friendly candidate. And of course, the result of flapping your big mouth is that you help elect the less friendly to America president? I see no evidence that Donald Trump is anything like a deal maker. And uh, just to tell you a school here, I mean, I, I'm talk, you mentioned I was talking from an airport lounge. I'm in Toronto, where I have spent part of my life. I have a business life. I'm, my family's in the real estate industry. There is a Trump hotel in Toronto. And I have to tell you that you know, in the real estate community, Donald Trump's name is somewhere between mud, for those who in any way he owes money to, and a laughingstock to those who doesn't, he doesn't owe money to that no one in the business world has any respect for him as a businessman. Um, and that is just, it's just an imposture. Yeah. I mean, that, that's something that, again, it, it's truly bewildering that this point meant nothing during the campaign and, and that he managed to triumph over it. But he is an imposter as a businessman. We don't know how wealthy he, he is or was when he was running. Uh, we have a pretty good sense that he'll be very wealthy now as a result of being president. But yeah, if you if you listed the top 20 real estate developers, even just in New York City, he wasn't on that list. And if you ask them about who Donald Trump was, he was a, a virtual non-entity. He was just branding his name and lying about everything and leaving this wake of severed relationships for whatever construction deals he did. So it's, it is a, it's just, it's an amazing con. I mean, you have to give him that. He is a con artist. It says... Uh, more bad things about the people taken in by it than, than it says good things about him, but he is the greatest con artist in human history, perhaps, given the results. A couple more questions here, Dave, and then I'll let you go. What should Trump's actions or attitude towards Russia or Putin be for you to consider him responding properly? There's an interesting question about what should Trump's attitude be and what should generally a more normal American president. Both the two past presidents, Bush and Obama, both began the, relationship, the presidencies by trying to reach a more normal relationship with Russia, and both failed. And maybe that's a phase that you have to go through. Um, because it certainly would be a 
an easier world to manage if the Russians were less nihilistic and destructive actors within it. But I would say the beginning of my reaction here is if an adverse foreign power tries a clandestine intervention in an American election. So I'm, I'm not talking here about the government of Germany welcoming candidate Obama, um, although they didn't really do that. But if candidate Obama goes to Germany, a lot of Germans cheer and make it clear that the German people like Obama better than McCain, you know, that's, that's politics, right? It's, it's, it's out in the open. Everyone can take the measure of it. I'm talking about clandestine assistance by a hostile foreign power. Any patriotic candidate for president should rebuff that and should say, when the WikiLeaks thing, what I would have expected of Donald Trump, the thing that when you say, what would change my mind? If when the WikiLeaks things had erupted, that he had said, I will absolutely, I repudiate this. Um, I, I, see no, I see no scandal here. I regard this as a hostile act against the United States. And when it comes to who should be president, Hillary Clinton and I have some very important disagreements, but as to the interests of the United States, we are as one, and I join with her, and maybe you have a joint press conference um, in which you repudiate this foreign intervention. That's what a patriot does. Yeah, that would have been so easy to do. I mean, it's, it's just the idea that the distance between that and what, in fact, he did isn't clear to people is, is very surprising. We have a perfect example. If I direct people to see the YouTube video of the leader of the German Social Democrats talking about um, Angela Merkel's confrontation with Trump in Brussels where he says, you know, when the, when the chancellor of Germany is outside of the country, she represents all of us. And when the chancellor of Germany is insulted outside of the country, that is an insult to all of us. And our disagreements are among Germans within a democratic framework. Um, but outside the country, we have one chancellor at a time, and she's our leader. You know, that's, that, you watch that thing, that's, that's the way it's supposed to be. And Hillary Clinton wasn't the incumbent president. But the point is, my, my, my fellow candidate, you know, we, we both have more our commitment to the, our common commitment to the system is greater than our commitment to winning. And if you don't believe in that, you don't believe in a constitution, because that's what a constitution means. All right, getting to the end here. Um, you just mentioned Hillary. This will be familiar to you. Can you confidently say that Hillary was a much better choice when she perpetrated criminal activity by her corporate backers? Look, I'm, I'm not a big Hillary Clinton fan, to put it mildly. I'm unaware of any. She did a lot of things I thought were indivisible, unwise, some things that I thought were ethically dubious, and some things that I think, you know, may have broken the law of information handling and would have, if she'd still been on government service, kept cost her security clearance in order to, I think, defeat FOIA requests. So those things are all improper. I don't think she was a, the most ethical person we've ever seen in American public life. I'm unaware of anything she did that could be considered criminal. And most of the things that she's accused of doing that are criminal are just crazy. I mean, no, she's not a serial killer. <laughs> she's a little undiscriminating about her speaking face, but she's not a serial killer. So I expected that I would be right now banging my head against the Clinton administration and caught up in all kinds of, you know, arguments over their petty fiddles. Not, I, you know, I was not happy to cast my ballot for her at all. But do I think she would have been, if not a better, a better choice? Yes. Do I think she would have been a more American choice? Yes. Okay, finally, is there anything good to come out of this? fiasco? Is there a silver lining to the Trump presidency yeah, at all? There may, there may be. I mean, well, here, and here's one, and, and I think your show is an example of this. I mean, I can, I can list a number, but let me just end with one, um, because I've taken an hour of everyone's time, and that's a lot. The level of civic engagement that we have seen since the election is unlike anything I can remember. And although there are awful incidents like these goons who interrupted Charles Murray, you know, and, and this, you know, idiotic behavior on campus that you've spoken so eloquently about. 
Fact is, day in, day out, most of the oppositional activity to Trump is taking to heart the sacredness of legality and a free society and playing by the rules. And so it's not just that people are engaged, but they're engaged for the most part in the right way and on a scale unlike anything I've ever seen. It makes me very happy and very proud. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can certainly echo that for purely personal reasons. It's given me an excuse to have conversations with people like yourself on a regular basis. And that's, that's been a, a both a personal and professional joy. So again, thank you, David, for coming on. It's, it's great to have you to talk to. Thank you for the air. <laughs>